Father, we thank you for your word that endures forever. We thank you for the hope that goes behind the curtain that anchors us in the midst of things when we can't uh, understand, Lord, our world, our lives, the struggles that we might have. We have this hope anchored for us through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus. Send your Holy Spirit to be with us to enliven our study of your word. Now help us to understand the hard things and to clarify the beauty of the gospel that we have in your son, Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're in the, the last section of Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to be picking up at verse 13 to the end of the chapter, Lord willing, today. Uh, but as we do, I want to talk about cars. One of my favorite things to talk about. Talk about cars here to start with. And you guys might know the top three factors for consumers when you're buying a car. What are the top three things that you consider? It's safety, economy, and the third one is? What did I hear? Oh, not right. Reliability. Reliability. Whether or not it has a spoiler. No. Um, reliability. And uh, you have here an extremely tiny print uh, from J.D. Power, the 2021 Vehicle Dependability Study. You might not want to look. It, it might disappoint you. But at the top, Lexus. Ooh. Then Porsche. Yes. Then Kia. Any Kia owners in here? No. That make good cars. I didn't realize they were so high. But then Toyota. I'm a Toyota guy. This is the most reliable. So top is the best. Yeah. Top's the, top's the best. So this is problems per 100,000, I think is what they, they call it. What's the um, yellow and the blue? I'm not sure why those top two, those two at the top are yellow, um, but uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Um, but then Buick, surprisingly, maybe I mean maybe not surprisingly, but I was impressed. Comes in at number five. Court, I'm having a trouble seeing Ford here. Where's Ford at? <laughs> Ford is real reliable. They have been paying my. Retirement. <laughs> <laughs> they, they can count on that. So where, where is this they're off the charts. Yeah, they're off the charts. <laughs> and then the one that, uh, what's that? Where is this report from? J.D. Power. You know, you always hear, yeah. I don't know what J.D. Power does other than um, provide fodder for commercials, but um, J.D. Power. Some of those reports just came out yesterday. Oh, okay. Toyota was one What's the luxury? Lexus. Lexus. <clears throat> Lexus. Yeah, Toyota and Lexus are same same company. The one that really um, <clears throat> took me aback, though, was you see Tesla um, yeah. is way down there. They put it separately, but it's basically just ahead of your Jaguar, Alfa Romeo, and Land Rover. Okay, so oh, that might give you pause. But I bring this up not to uh, rag or to celebrate any particular car brands, but to ask you how important to you is reliability. Is that in your top three when you're picking a car? Just below the spoiler. Just below the spoiler. Yeah, exactly. Can I get it in cherry apple red? Moonroof. Yeah, moonroof. Okay, so show of hands if that's one of your, your top three most important factors. All right, so m most of you. Why is that? For those of you that say that is one of, if not my most important. Okay, it's a good investment. All right. Say that. Cars are not a good investment. Cars are not a good investment, period. They can be better or worse, though, right? It can be better or worse. Yeah, David. If you need, if you need to get somewhere, if it's important to your particular uh, vocation, yeah. job, you, you need to go. I can't go and it doesn't start, doesn't right. work, breaks down. That You can't have that. Yeah. I'm curious. <clears throat> let's see who's had a car that's gone the highest number of miles. Okay. Show of hands if you had a car go over 200,000 miles. All right. 250? 
300? Oh, 350? Ah, okay. Between 3 and 350. Reliability matters. You don't want to be left on the side of the road. You want to know that when it turns, when you turn the key, it's going to start. You want to know that your investment is worthwhile. You want to know that it's going to be there for you. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, well, Jake, what was it? What's that? That 300 plus thousand? It's at 330. Okay, your truck? Yeah. Dodge Ram, right? Yep. All right, it's at 330. Hans, how about for you? A Dodge Sport. So a couple of Dodges here. All right, let that be a little commercial. The neighbor with the Jeep, he's got 320 on it. 320, the neighbor with the Jeep. And that's. That's a good reminder. Thank you, Christine. Right, Leslie? Um, that uh, the Winters have a neighbor who's in, in desperate, dire need of transportation. We got a car. Oh, you got it? We got one. Sam Stein's. The 330,000 mile one? No, no, no. <laughs> yeah, they're all set for another week. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, way to sell high, buddy. Way to sell high. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Good. I'm glad to hear that. That's great news. But I do still have another car if somebody wants it. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to be talking about reliability, not of vehicles, but of God's promise. God's promise as we dig into the section of Hebrews 6. So go ahead, open that up. And uh, Hebrews 6, starting with verse 13. Can you volunteer to read verses 13 through 15? 13 through 15 and 6. Yeah. Hebrews 6, verses 13 through 15. Got it, Dave? Yeah. Thanks. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Okay, thank you. So this goes back to the end of the last section, of course, where <clears throat> verse 12 ended with, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. So now the preacher is going to point to who's the best example we can think of as somebody who's, uh, through faith and patience, inherited the promises. It's like we're going right to Abraham. Before we talk about Abraham a little bit more, just a word about the swearing of oaths. So swearing of oaths in the ancient world was supremely important. And I put on here, number two on your handout, that swearing oaths in the ancient world was tantamount to the double dog dare. <laughs> you were upping the stakes because to swear an oath, especially to do so in the sight of God, was saying, in effect, if I break this oath, I, I may God deal with me as, as, he, as he needs to. And in particular, when they would be um, preparing a covenant, or what was known as cutting a covenant, that was what the Hebrew phrase literally was, Animals would be cut in half, and you'd put two rows of animals cut in half, and you'd walk through them, and you would say something to the effect of, so may it be to me if I break this covenant. That's how seriously they took vows and oaths in the ancient world. And why would that have been? Your word was your bond. Your word was your bond. You'd, you don't have insurance, you know, lawyers, right? You don't have um, all these other apparatuses in order to ensure that something, uh, that somebody keeps an oath. And so this is that right there saying, I'm doing this in the sight of God, okay? De Deuteronomy 6, it's the Lord your God you shall fear, him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. That was the idea. I'm making this promise, this oath in the sight of God. You're upping the stakes when you do that. 
I mean, and, and saying, listen, come what may. And even as kids, you remember doing this? When you say something like, what would you say? Cross, cross my heart and hope to die, right? Stick a needle in my eye. Stick a needle in my eye, right? <laughs> in doing so, as a kid, you're up in the stakes. You're like, hey, you know, I'm, I'm serious here. This, this, this means real business, right? Now, of course, Jesus is going to push back on this practice a little bit, isn't he? What's Jesus going to say in the Sermon on the Mount? Yes or no. You let your yes be yes and your no be no. And so Jesus says, enough of this. <clears throat> and I don't know all of the historical background. I'm sure as it is throughout the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is responding to some use or abuse of oaths at the time. I'm certain of that. Uh, but he said, listen, <clears throat> you don't need to do all of this triple dog dare. Let your word be good, right? None of this other they're funny business. Uh, an oath was really key, though, in the ancient world. And that's what the preacher is, is playing on here. And he goes on to say then <clears throat> that the triune God, in effect, number three on your handout, the triune God co-signs his own covenant promise, right? God is saying he's the, one, he's the guarantor of this promise. Because, I mean, at one level, it's just a practical thing, right? God, who, God's going to make a, a promise. Everybody else promises by God. Who does God promise by, right? Um, he promises, he swears by himself swears according to himself. Surely I will bless and multiply you. This is the promise that's echoing back to uh, Genesis chapter 22 with uh, when Abraham takes his son Isaac, he's prepared to sacrifice and doesn't, and God makes his promise. Genesis 22, 15 and following, the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I'll surely bless you and I'll surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that's on the seashore. So this is the logic of oaths, generally speaking. And what the preacher is trying to help us to, to recognize is that when it comes to God, he has nobody else hired to swear by. You know, can't say cross my heart, hope to die. He's, he swears by himself. And then we, want to, we look at Abraham as a great example of one who trusted that oath, who trusted that promise. Uh, anybody remember how long Abraham had to wait from the time that God made his promise to him to the time that he finally had his, his son Isaac? 90, at least 30 years. It was, it was 25 years. Yeah. At, at 75, Abraham's hanging out, cushy retirement, right? <laughs> Drinking a pina colada, life is good over in Ur. And God says, hey, I got a calling for you, Abraham. You know, and I can just imagine Sarah saying, hang up, hang up. <laughs> we know how it goes with this God. <clears throat> but he doesn't. He goes out, he follows him for 25 years. He waits until finally at 100 and, and Sarah's at 90. Uh, he gives birth. And in Genesis 17, there's this reiteration of the, of the promise. God says, I will bless her, Sarah, and moreover, I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? As a matter of fact, yes. But he hoped against hope, it says in Romans 4. And in the epistle we read today from James 5, that admonition to be patient, be patient. Scripture says this up and down. So why can't we be patient? You know, I prayed for patience with God once, but he didn't do it, so I moved on. 
Um, that's a joke. Sorry, that's a bad pastor joke. But what are what are some of the <clears throat> the obstacles to developing patience in in our world today and in our own you know human nature? We want it now. Okay, we and, want it now. And we're inundated with advertising like that. You need this, and you need it now. Yeah, call now. Right. Right. You need it. You need it now. Okay. Yep. Yeah, Ann. Well, part of our understanding of God's power is that he could do things instantaneously. Mm. Sure. So why not? Why not? That's right. That's a good point. So God's all-powerful. He has, he has the ability right now to fix my problem, to answer my prayer, to do this thing. So why not? Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, Bob? I think both vocationally and just socially, um, things have sped up so quickly. I mean, 150 years ago, maybe many people farmed. Yeah. Patient, I mean, farmers have to be patient. But there's a rhythm to life once that cultivated patience. Yeah. And we don't have that rhythm anymore. Yeah. Loosely. Right. We expect things to be done quickly because so often they are done quickly. Right. And so some of just the, the normal common sense features of modern life put us in a, a frame of mind where we expect things to happen quickly. Uh, I mentioned the Inklings this week. I just finished this biography of, of Harriet Quimby, which I really recommend, Fearless. Um, and it talks about how she was, in addition to being the first woman with the pilot's license in America, she was one of the first women with a driver's license. And when she first started driving, she talked about how she couldn't believe how fast it was going. Her hat's flying off. How fast was she going? Eight miles per hour, y'all. She was going eight miles per hour. Uh, later, she would go in a car that was 100 miles per hour, and that really did blow her hair back. But, um, you know, we just, some of the features of modern life really make us think things have to happen quickly. There's a lot of obstacles. Patience, and then just in our normal human nature, right? Patience just doesn't come naturally. It's hard to wait. And when everything else in our world is kind of pushing against it too, uh, the, the conditions are not propitious for us to, to cultivate patience. Just put it that way, right? All the more reason why, us need, why we need to be mindful of it, prayerful about it, and intentional about how can we develop this sort of patience. Because God doesn't promise always that he's going to do things right away, even though he could. So, number five then on your handout, just to underscore that point. <clears throat> God may not work on our timetable, <clears throat> to, you know, to, to uh, just put it uh, mildly, but he can always be counted on. Right? God may not work on our timetable, but he can always be counted on. And I just wonder if, <clears throat> does anybody have a, a, a story or an example to share of something like that? Of a time when God was not working on your timetable, but you could still count on him. Yeah, Esther. Well, when I was in my 30s, early 30s, um, I got colitis really, really bad, and um, doctors gave up on me and said that's the way I was going to be the rest of my life. Wow. No medicines worked, nothing. And so I'm on my hands and knees one morning, couldn't go to work, pounding on the floor. God, you say in your word, you know, whatever we ask in your name, you'll give it to us. It's been six months, Lord. <laughs> you know, what's going on? Right. And, you know, in that moment, just kind of peace came over me, mm. and it was like I heard these words, don't you think I love you? Mm. And then, what would you suggest I give you in place of this to make the changes I'm trying to make? Mm. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know. 
So, but it was two years from the time you started praying. Uh, it was on his timetable, not yours. But I, I love that that question that um, you faced in prayer. What would you want me to? What would you want me to replace us with to do what I'm I'm doing in you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. You know, were you there? Were you there? And also to be careful what you wish for too, right? In the sense of like, hey, you might think you know what you want. Incidentally, I watched a movie that came out recently from Disney with the kids Disenchanted. Yeah. As a, and it's basically, <clears throat> the movie is, is a, a long take on that old idea, be careful what you wish for. So if you have any children or grandchildren, you need to teach that lesson to you, you might consider watching that movie. But anyway, I, I digress. Um, yeah, Hans. Oh, I just had just a, another thought. You thought said that Abraham, uh, that was a, a real act of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, that he had a child when he was 90 or 100. yeah. Then uh, Sarah lived for another 37 years. Then he took another wife after she died and had six more kids. So he was 137. Now, your, your example of... Well, yeah, endurance. endurance. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't a big stud, I don't know. I don't know, yeah. No <laughs> comment, that's impressive. Uh, <laughs> all right, so patience. Patience is challenging, but patience is vital when it comes to trusting in God's promise. And I think it goes very much with the topic of this morning's sermon as well, and doubt, and things that can create doubt often go along with, frankly, our impatience, the way we expect things to be when we want them to be. All right, let's continue on uh, verses 16 through 18. Again, can I get a, read, a reader for verses 16 through 18 of Hebrews 6? For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all the disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. Good, thank you. Oh, all right, so here you have now the preacher is going, <clears throat> he's giving the example of Abraham, and now he's going to talk about just kind of applying it to his hearers when it comes to how God operates. And again, from the human perspective, number six on your handout, oaths in the ancient world, humanly speaking, delivered certainty in an uncertain world. That was their function. They delivered certainty in an uncertain world. You, you don't know how things are going to go, but if you make an oath, Somebody makes an oath, okay, this is as good as nowadays the way that we rely on contracts, right? They make contracts the way that we do now. They cut covenants. They made oaths. They swore oaths. That's where they uh, hung their hat. 
So in Exodus 22, if a man gives to his neighbor a donkey or an ox or a sheep or any beast to keep safe and it dies or is injured or is driven away without anyone seeing it, an oath by the Lord shall be between them both to see whether or not he's put his hand to his neighbor's property. The owner shall accept the oath and he shall not make restitution. This just underscores the fact that the oath provided that kind of certainty. It wasn't questioned. It, it settled the matter, right? This guy makes an oath before the Lord. He says, listen, bud, I didn't poison your donkey, all right? I'm sorry that happened. There's nothing I can do about it. Then it's done, and you can't take restitution. You've got to assume, all right, what's done is done. You can take your word. Provided that kind of certainty in an uncertain world. We're always looking for that. We just create more mechanisms that we think will give us that kind of certainty. But at the end of the day, it's always still going to be there to some extent. Yeah, Ann. Is the idea that if the caretaker were dishonest in that oath, yeah. that, that God would yep. take care of that? Yep, it's exactly right. So the idea is if the caretaker was dishonest in his oath, he's going to get his. Yep, exactly. God is, God is going to see to it um, that he'll, he'll receive punishment. And they were especially thinking temporal punishment, in other words, in this life. Um, but I think... You know, from a New Testament perspective, we would think of uh, an eternal punishment as well to have that unbelief in the heart. All right, so then what we're all driving toward is God's promise and his oaths. Okay, so number seven on your handout then. For his people's sake, God heaps an oath atop his faithful word. <clears throat> Heap is the word that just, the verb that came to my mind. I'm still thinking about Thanksgiving. And when your plate's full, I don't have any more room for cornbread. And then you just heap it on top, right? Does God, and you think, do I really need the cornbread? No, but I'm, I want the cornbread. I'm going to heap it on there. Does God need to make an oath on top of just his word and his promise? He does not. Does he do it for his own sake? No. Who's, for whose sake does he do it? For your sake and mine. He does it for the sake of his people. To provide even greater assurance and confidence for them. He doesn't want us to, to live in a state of uncertainty and wondering. So he makes this oath on top. So that by two unchangeable things in which it's impossible for God to lie. If it's your own Bible, you might want to underline that. It's impossible for God to lie. Not that God is truthful. Not that God generally gives us a good idea. It's literally not possible for him to lie. It is inimical to his character. It is completely foreign to his nature. It's impossible for him to lie. And yet, so, so that he gives us these two unchangeable things that we might have that confidence. Proverbs 19 says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. It's not our human purposes they are, are fickle, they go back and forth, but God's purposes do stand. Again, Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, so shall it stand. And once more, Malachi 3, I, the Lord, do not change. Notice this, therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. <clears throat> because of the changeless nature of who our God is, that's, what, that's how I, I, we can get up in the morning. Right? People will say sometimes, oh, because uh, you know, I rely on the, the laws of gravity, right? Because I know that gravity is going to be certain, that's why I can go outside in the morning and not worry about flying up into the sky, right? Even more so, the God who orchestrates all things. Uh, he, that's the, the basis of our confidence. That's where our certainty comes from. 
Nothing exists apart from his will. And it's not just the case that he wound things up at the beginning and let it go, but every day. The fact that the sun rises again, G.K. Chesterton says, is because God says, again! <laughs> He's the one who's holding all things in his hand. That's where the, the certainty then comes from, not the purposes and plans of men. All right. <clears throat> so then, uh, it's all driving toward this last uh, verse of that, that section, verse 18, when it says, uh, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We who have fled for refuge. All right, so this is really cool. <clears throat> the preacher, remember, it's called Hebrews, writing to folks who have this, this strong Old Testament background. There's two particular Old Testament images, according to commentators, that the preacher probably has in mind here. <clears throat> Any guess on what they might be? We're going deep into Old Testament stuff. Refuge is the key. Is the key word that refuge is the that's the, the catchphrase. Moses. Um, well, you think of Moses uh, and the you think of the basket and so forth. No, when he the red fled to Egypt or wherever he fled to. Oh, uh, okay. After the <clears throat> yes killing of the and God provided refuge for him. Sure, that would that would go along with it. Um, but in in particular, this is this is deep stuff. Yeah, go ahead. Is it the cities of refuge? Yeah, so that's one of them. Good. So the cities of refuge. This is. I mean, not, not something we come across a, a whole lot, but um, it shows up a few times, and especially the first five books. <clears throat> and the purpose of the cities of refuge is that, you know, it gives us example. I think it's in Deuteronomy. Sometimes, guys, you know how this is. You're out chopping wood, right? You're out chopping wood, and you forgot to double-check your axe head before you went out, right? So it, it, it's not on there real tight. And go out there, and neighbor comes by, and Hans is chopping away. Hey, Hans, how you doing? And the accent flies off and splits the guy's head open. You guys didn't know this happened? Oh, no, just kidding, just kidding. Don't be my neighbor. Right, exactly. Won't you be my, never mind. Um, don't you be my neighbor. Um, it actually gives that example in the Bible. And so in this situation, is what we call manslaughter, right? a, a kind of un unintentional, inadvertent killing. Well, there was <clears throat> the, the system set in place that you would have within a family, you would have somebody called the avenger of blood. And the avenger of blood is the person who's coming after, if you murdered somebody in my family, my avenger, I mean, it's very like, you're like, is this the Sopranos? Is this Godfather, right? You got the avenger of blood, now I find you. Um, my voice might work even better that for was my perfect. <laughs> <laughs> perfect. Finally. Um, so the cities of refuge were places that you could run to. You accidentally kill somebody. You run to the, the cities of refuge. There you can, you can take up shop and, and be safe so that they can't come and, and get you there. Yeah, Christine? That's what they base the churches on when you leave the doors open as a place of sanctuary. Sanctuary. The idea of sanctuary. Yeah, that's right. And so then the second one, to um, drill it down on that even more, the first image is the cities of refuge. But the second image, and this is one that I did not know about until um, preparing for the study, is that the horns of the altar, the horns of the altar were themselves a, the, a safe place. You could go there. And so um, I think I, I put it in here. From 1 Kings 1, this comes up. You have this situation where Adonijah is afraid that Solomon is going to exact retribution on him. 
And so just like when you're a kid and you're playing capture the flag or tag and you've got a safe place, Adonijah runs into the sanctuary and grabs onto the horns of the altar. And there he's safe. You can't live there. You can't stay there for too long. <laughs> and Adonijah says to him, promise me you're not going to kill me. I know you're mad at me, Solomon. Promise you won't kill me. And he promises. He says, no, let King Solomon swear to me first that he won't put his servant to death with the sword. King Solomon swears, right? There's that other connection with this passage. And Adonijah goes on his way. So I found that so interesting. Now, think about that again. And Christine's already going there. An application to us as Christians today. We, we call it sanctuary. The, the, the place when we gather for worship, we're coming to that place of, of sanctuary. We're fleeing for refuge into the presence of God, right? the safe space, grabbing the, the horns of the altar through the body and blood of Jesus. He's, this is our stronghold, it says in Zechariah 9. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I'll restore to you double. It's a compelling image to me. I just see it's a, a beautiful thing. The idea is like we are all in this life refugees. Bob talks about this. Or we're all exiles. We flee for refuge to Christ, to his presence. Um, so I, that's, that's what we do each Sunday, but whenever we come to God in, in his word, that's what we're up to. Right. Questions or reflections about that? It sounds like uh, Cain, when he had killed Abel, mm. and it's like, where can I go? Yeah, that's right. Everybody's going to kill me. He, he sent him away into the land of Nod, right? <coughs> Where can I go? And God, and God tells him, hey, listen, no, don't worry. I'm going to put the mark on you. Nobody, nobody can touch you. But that was kind of a forerunner in anticipation of the cities of refuge later. Yeah. So, all right. Well, bottom line for those few verses, then number nine on your handout, have no doubt God's promise is more reliable than Alexis. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly than, than a, a Tesla, apparently. Um, all right. Let's go to the, to the last couple of verses here. Beautiful, beautiful verse. I learned in studying this too, this passage does not show up in the lectionary. It doesn't come up in our, our order of readings for worship, which is just a shame because there's such powerful consolation and comfort here, but especially in these last couple of verses. So uh, can you volunteer to read verses 19 and 20 of, of Hebrews 6? Bill, you looked at me. Yeah. <laughs> We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain, where Jesus, who went before us, has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Okay. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. Now, I'm not much of a, <coughs> a nautical guy myself, so maybe some of you guys who are, what, how does it, what's the function of an anchor? What are some things that we should know about anchors? Why are they important? What do they do? Stop a boat. Stop a boat. Hold it fast. Hold it fast. From doing, so keep it from doing what? Drifting away. Drifting away. Is it, is it fair to say that <clears throat> apart from an anchor, just the natural drift of things, that a boat's gonna float away. I mean, it's not just gonna stay where it is, right? Okay, what else does the anchor do? That's its principal purpose. Is there anything else? I'm just asking, I don't know. I'm not looking for an answer. 
What? It hurts when you kick it? <laughs> you can drop it on a cartoon character if you need to. Yeah. 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 No. The, the actual physics of anchor are it, it is something that secures something that has no direction to something solid. Okay. In other words, the anchor is planted in, in something that's permanent, solid. Right, right. Uh, and what it's doing is holding something that without an anchor, I mean, you can do everything you want to do, yep. but it's not going to be secure. Right. I mean, so it's, it's an unsolid connected to a solid. Good. Unsolid connected to a solid. So in this analogy, the unsolid is us, right? Don't be offended. Right? Jesus says, blessed is the one who's not offended by me. Don't be offended. That's who we are, though, right? We are unsolid people. But we cling to this sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, the hope that we have in Christ, a hope behind the inner curtain. Christian hope, number 10 on your handout. Christian hope is anchored, like Bill said, it's anchored from an unsolid to a solid. It's anchored in heaven. It's anchored in God's abode. We have that hope right there. And so the psalmist prays in Psalm 43, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. In other words, why, why are you in this turmoil? Why is your heart so unsettled? Because you are not just being cast to and fro by the waves. You have a hope that is anchored and solid and secure in the midst of all the tumult of this world. You can be sure of this, that God's word holds you fast. There's a flip side to this, though, too. <clears throat> the fact that our hope is anchored in heaven. The picture is kind of like, the anchor's up there and there's like this cord swinging down from the heavenly heights that we are holding on to, right? And so there's also this. Ecclesiastes 3 says, God has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Now where I'm going with this, C.S. Lewis makes a big deal about this in a lot of his writings. If our hope is anchored in heaven, then is anything in this earthly life going to satisfy you? No. Nothing can. Because you are, your heart is created for eternity. Your hope is anchored in heaven. And so everything in this earthly life is going to be inherently, at some level, unsatisfying. Right? Because uh, this is the, the famous prayer of, of St. Augustine. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Restless like the waves going back and forth until they rest in him because our hearts and our hope is anchored in heaven. If you try to, anchor, try to anchor your life in the things of this world, how does that work out for you? Right? If, if you try to anchor your hope in, um, in your job, if you try to, to drop down anchor, even in relationships, all of these things are shifting sands, right? If you try to drop anchor in anything in this world, ultimately, you're just going to be drifting away. Our hope has to be anchored in heaven. That's our shifting, our shiftless spot in this shifting, uncertain world, right? No, 
him my hope is built on nothing less. You know exactly where I'm going. That's right. Hold that thought. We'll go, go back there in a second. I think we might. I'm sensing some singing coming on here. I just pulled him up. <laughs> Last thought, number 11. We can be certain of this hope because Jesus, our lead climber, has gone before us. He's a forerunner on our behalf. Now, I use this, this image, this analogy. Um, that's a different way of thinking about anchor. When we think about anchor, we typically think of it like ships, looking at a ship right now. There's another um, area of uh, endeavor that talks about anchors. Um, another hobby. I'm not sure if any of you are into this, but it's rock climbing. Um, and I've not been a big rock climber myself, but uh, this spring, a uh, family we went down um, to Kentucky and Tennessee. We met up with our friends, uh, the Zigglers in Kentucky. And uh, my buddy Mike is, and his whole family, they do rock climbing down in St. Louis. And he's an uh, accomplished climber, especially a, he does a lead, he's a lead climber, okay? And so the lead climber is the insane one, right? <laughs> when you think about rock climbing, what you think about it is the, when you think, oh man, rock climbing is nuts. You're thinking about the lead climber. Because what does the lead climber have to do? He's the one. Yeah, he's, he's the one who's got to hook in to the anchor so that everybody else coming up has that security, that, that safety net of the belay, right? <clears throat> They're being belayed when they go up there. But one person has to go up there without the safety net. Now, they, they mitigate that a little bit because you hook in as you go up, and so ideally, the most you're gonna fall is like 10 or 15 feet. But even that, talk to Pastor Power and interlocking about this, because his son Mike was doing a, one of these, he was lead climbing, and he did fall. And when he fell, he fell backwards. He was upside down. He didn't have a helmet on. And he was this close from smacking his head, and it, would, it, it may well have done him in. So even if you're like, oh, well, you're not falling the whole way, it, it's still extremely dangerous. So I was thinking about this as Jesus. Jesus as the forerunner. He's our lead climber, right? He's the one who's gone before us. He is the one who has... Put that, and maybe rock climbing is even better for this because he's he has ascended into heaven and put that firm anchor in heaven for you and me, so that now it's like, all right, climb on. <laughs> really, Lord, can we be certain? Can we be sure? Yes, we can be certain. We can be sure because we have that promise. We have that forerunner. We have that one who has gone before us. Who says, climb on, go on. You need not fear. Right? I'll catch you. You will not fall. I'll be with you, no matter what. That's the promise that we uh, depend on. John 14, Jesus says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it weren't so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. He's gone ahead to prepare in advance for us. And again, Romans 8. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. We cling to this line of faith, uh, trusting in Jesus and climbing toward him. Yeah, Matt, did I see a hand? Well, I was wondering if there's another allusion here to, wasn't there an old uh, a temple practice of tying a rope around yeah. the priest in case he does something wrong? Yes. Drag him back out. I didn't know if that was kind of a... Um, well, yeah, so it has some biblical basis. Entering the place behind the curtain. Yes, place, entering the place behind the curtain. Right, exactly. So our great high priest, he is the one who has gone in behind the curtain on our behalf. He's carried the rope. He's, 
He's our, our lead guy. He set the anchor. Uh, and we can be sure and certain then that because he's there and he hasn't dropped dead and needs to be pulled back out, that he's able to pull you and me forward. Yeah, Bob. Yeah, a piece of that, too, is him going in behind the curtain. I'm getting the sense that he's opened that curtain wide open. Right. You could only go in once a year. If you did go in any other yep. time or any other way, you were a dead person yes. for sure. He's opened it, so we're now free to access that altar. That's exactly right. Uh, without fear. I mean, he's opened it for us to go in, so intercession's huge here. That's exactly right. Jesus has, the, I mean, the curtain was torn at his death. Um, Hebrews will later say, the preacher will say, Jesus' own body was that curtain, and his flesh was torn to open that access and presence. Yeah, Ben? Uh, another anchor thing is during track and field, Oh, really? The last person to run is called the anchor. Oh, cool. So I guess you're depending on them to win the race for the I race. like that. Good. And so this is uh, kind of inverts almost the image of him as the forerunner, but uh, it plays on that idea of the anchor. Thank you. I really like that. He's the one that we count on. He's the one that we can depend on. He's the one who's already won the race for us, right? And because he's already given us the victory. What's the that? strongest runner. He's the, he's the strongest runner. That's exactly right. Yeah, Leslie. Uh, the, uh, what Bob just said uh, brought to mind, too, when the curtain was torn, it was torn from bottom to top. Now when I'm pretty sure it was top to bottom. Top to bottom. I think it says top to bottom. I, I was thinking it was bottom to top, because usually when things tear, they tear from the top. Yeah, I think it said top to bottom. Um, can double check on that, but um, yeah. What's that? It's got. Yeah, because it's got taken from from the top to the bottom. So it's powerful, powerful image of our Lord who's gone before us to open the way, and now calls us to climb up, to come forward. All right. So two final thoughts then, just in conclusion and application. Number one, in conclusion, resist the onslaught of the immediate and practice patience. So I was just brainstorming this morning, thinking of um, some, some practical application here. So these are not spiritual things, take it for what it's worth, but ways to cultivate patience in our instant gratification age. Order from the store instead of using Amazon, all right? You're like, I need it right now. Order from the store. I, I, you want a book? Order from the bookstore in Frankfurt. You've got to wait a couple of days. I can just get it on the Kindle. I'll get it right now. Just it forces you to be patient a little bit, right? Secondly, plan and plant a garden. You know, plant, get, get into the time of year. You got the seed catalog. You're, you're planting it all out. You're waiting. And then the practice of planting garden. You can't hurry it, right? You can't rush it along. Okay, come on. Come on, little tomato plant. Come on. Here it comes. Um, it's a practice in patience. <clears throat> Create a commitment device. This is a term that psychologists use where it forces you to be patient, okay? Or it, force, it can force you to do different things, but creating commitment devices. And what made me think of this was I was reading an article uh, about Michigan State and how they signed Mel Tucker to this 10-year contract for $95 million, right? And there's some people who are like, we need to fire the bum. It's like, well, we owe him $85 million. And so we're probably not going to fire <laughs> but the article was saying it's forced patience. And in the, in the world of big-time college football, the, the author was saying more schools would, would stand to benefit from that. Uh, think about if Coach Harbaugh had been canned a couple of years ago, like a lot of people wanted to. 
They wouldn't have been reaping the rewards that they are now. Forced patience, commitment device. And then, yes, on football. <laughs> Root for the Detroit Lions. Never won a Super Bowl, but maybe this year. I don't know. You see, they're actually favorites today against the Vikings. So, yes, my dear. That could be a vain hope. Your hope is not secured if you're rooting for the Lions. It was like the Cubbies in the pennant, right? I know, the Cub fans, God bless them. All right, then last, last thought. Hope holds fast when the world gives way. Hope holds fast when the world gives way. So yes, I thought we'd close by singing uh, these couple verses from My Hope is Built on Nothing Less, which are inspired by these verses. So I need somebody else to lead, though. I'm not gonna lead us in singing here. Go ahead and pipe up. When darkness fails his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace.